Hello and welcome to this episode of Otmo, the podcast that seeks to explore what's on the mind of some of the most respected and admired people from the world of social good. I'm Joe Jenkins, your host for the show. Today we hear the fascinating journey into leadership of Anna Day. If you've not come across Anna, she's the founder and chief exec of the Centre for Social Change, which was founded back in 2018 to develop models of scaling up successful people charities and causes to enable them to grow their impact. Working with leaders across the charity sector, the centre has worked with a wide range of charities and social enterprises, including World Vision, Fertility Network UK, Full Spectrum, Penn Green Children and Family Centre, Fathers Development Foundation, Bright PIP, Engage Antenatal, Baytree and more. Now, I was really grateful to Anna for sharing her personal background and experience so frankly and openly. Charities often talk about the importance of lived experience, but Anna walks the talk. To hear how she grappled with leading a charity supporting those in homeless situations while at the same time bringing up a child on her own and facing homelessness, well, it was both humbling and inspiring. As Anna shares in the conversation, she took that big step up from a development role at Volunteer in England to chief exec at a number of charities, including BYHP, NOR PIP and The Land Project. Alongside the Centre for Social Change, Anna also founded the CEO Hacks for Nonprofit Leaders and Changemakers, which is a CEO training community for charity CEOs who manage smaller charities with a turnover of less than £1 million. When much of the leadership conversation often focuses on executive leaders of larger charities, I found it really interesting to hear the insights Anna brings working directly with leaders of smaller charities. Particularly when you appreciate that nearly 97% of UK charities have an income under £1 million, and in fact just under 50% have an income less than £10,000. So lots of provocative thoughts and learning to share here. I hope you enjoy. Let's get on with it. Here we go. Let's find out what's on the mind of Anna Day. So what is on my mind at the moment is that the Institute of Fundraising has recently achieved the chartered status. And what I find shocking is that chief executives still don't have a chartered status for what we do. (laughs) So um, I have been in the charity sector for 17 years now, and I became a chief executive in a quite a challenging situation. I jumped up into chief executiveship out of hardship rather than choice. I had a young child at the time and I was a project manager and um, I had I couldn't go back to my old job because it involved traveling across the country nationally. Uh, so I had to look for my next job that I could do as a single parent. And that was very challenging because I needed to earn a lot more money to be able to make work pay. So I became a chief executive by throwing myself in very much at the deep end. Um, I had virtually no management experience, limited budget experience. <laughs> and no governance experience, but I had been working in uh, national development for Voluntary England, setting up projects. So I had some fundraising and development experience. And I set my sights on becoming a chief executive and managed to convince a board to give me my first role <laughs> um, with you know some extraordinary feat. Um, but the reason why I mention this is because I then looked for finding out ways that I could train and prepare myself because uh, as an autodidactic I wanted to learn and I looked around and couldn't really find a lot of learning resources to help me do my day-to-day job. I then started a master's at London South Bank University in civil society management um, which was a massive stretch to do whilst being a chief executive and what I found was that actually Whilst doing that course was a brilliant course, it equipped me well as a consultant, but not necessarily as a chief executive. I still found it inevitably very hard managing people and also, you know, managing the day-to-day pressure of working with governance and, and, you know, making that relationship work. I carried on looking for training courses constantly and topping up my professional development. And I looked across the UK to try to find a leadership programme that would equip me, you know, to be a good CEO. I had the aspiration. I wanted to be a really good chief executive and I wasn't quite there yet. Um, And I actually ended up flying to the US and being part of the Global Women's Leadership Network and training with them in transformational leadership. 
And the skills I acquired doing that actually transformed the way that I fundraised and managed organizations. So I went from, you know, raising 10,000 and, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 here and there to raising millions of pounds and really being able to transform the organizations that I led. But, you know, this whole process took many years. And in the meantime, you know, I made mistakes. I had, you know, the most challenging times of my career to date, you know, and I also started to coach other chief executives and realized that I wasn't alone and that chief executives across the sector have very poor support in place for them. Uh, I think a lot of chief executives of smaller organizations feel like their needs aren't met by some of the larger infrastructure bodies that exist in the UK. And there just seems to be a lack of professional structure for learning for chief executives. So what I became fascinated by was how we could address this and how we could support chief executives to to learn and develop in the core competencies of being a chief executive. And I looked across different courses and frameworks and, you know, what was available out there. And it seems that everybody's very fascinated with the chief executive as, as leader, but there's so much operational work involved in being a chief executive that I felt it was really important that we think about what professional development exists for that operational side. Um, I founded the Centre for Social Change and the ACLAT Fellowship to address that and to start to work with that. But I certainly don't want to own this agenda. It's not, you know, for me to be the only training provider here. You know, I want everybody to rise to the mandate that chief executives need better training. Uh, We have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of charities across the sector And the chief executives who manage them come across the same problems again and again and again. And I wouldn't need to have my job if chief executives were better supported. Um, I think there's a genuine problem in the way that governance supports their chief executives to develop and an assumption that a chief executive is a finished product on, on the hire, even if they've stepped up into the role from something completely different or from being an operational manager. So there's an expectation from trustees that chief executives should be the finished article when they arrive and that they don't invest in their training and development. And chief executives don't always feel confident enough to invest in their own professional development and ask for funding to do that. But in fact, it's mission critical. Um, And what we see across the sector, you know, from being a consultancy and also, you know, we've, for example, been providing coaching for chief executives every week over um, ever since the beginning of the first lockdown, um, is we see that chief executives are coming across the same issue again and again. And they are paying money to solve these problems to expensive consultants who are essentially, you know, sort of enjoying, well, reaping, if you like, the rewards of um, of the fact that these chief executives all don't know how to do something. And to me, if all chief executives don't know how to do certain things, that's a professional development issue and not just something that should continuously be addressed with ploughing thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds into consultancies across charities that really can't necessarily afford this. You know, the charities that have turnovers of, you know, 40 to 100,000 a year or maybe 200,000 a year, you know, they shouldn't be spending tens of thousands of pounds trying to sort out um, problems that, you know, could be easily addressed if the chief executives were trained appropriately. Um, So trustees as well, you know, have a role to play in training and supporting their chief executives, but also in managing their performance and stretching them as chief executives. And I think um, many chief executives don't know how to manage that process of being managed or to support the trustees to do that well. So what happens is that in these charities, chief executives and trustees work together and the trustees tend to um, not manage the chief executive's performance until they see something going wrong. When they start to see something going wrong, they tend to overreact and become, uh, you know, hostile, aggressive, uh, discriminatory, um, challenging, you know, aggressive in the boardroom 
or, you know, sort of can be responsible for really, really um, destructive behaviours like trying to get staff to launch grievances in order to try to oust the chief executive. And there needs to be a more professional way that chief executives are managed by their boards. Um, from my personal opinion, you know, what that needs to look like is 360 degree reviews and performance uh, frameworks, but equally that there are structured processes in place for managing grievances. There is way too much money from the charity sector being paid out in um, two chief executives at the moment for non-disclosure agreements to encourage them to leave quietly. And this is irresponsible, you know, on behalf of the trustees that they should not be uh, covering up poor performance of chief executives with NDAs. They should be taking uh, tough decisions when they need to. Um, But equally, there should be the space for open conversations about when it's time for a chief executive to move on. And chief executives also need to assist that process by training their trustees in performance management. That if they're coming at it with the skill of managing their own staff team, they should be giving the trustees those same skills and not waiting until there's a problem to try to solve it. It is immensely difficult, I think, for trustees and chief executives alike to address areas where chief executives need to grow, but they really need to focus on a coaching model that assists people to really you know grow and develop rather than seeing as chief executive underperforming in an area and saying right you you're not good enough we're going to get rid of you you know that they take decisions to train and develop their CEOs um, I'll give you an example without naming the organization well I'm going to hold you there just for a because there's there's so much there in in, in all of what you've just shared already around uh, really the sort of the, the the state of the chief executive uh, nation in in the world of charity at the moment and uh, I'd really love to just take us back a little bit to unpick some of what you've shared already and then we can come to some of those examples of what that looks like in the future and um, but you referred to both your own kind of personal journey into leadership and what you've learned from that you also talked talked around uh, some of the core competencies that chief execs need. I'd love to hear a bit more about what that looks like and, and then where transformational leadership comes from that uh, that you learn from both the programme and then putting that into practice. So um, could we go back a step to, to your journey, perhaps, first of all, just to share how you came into that first chief exec role and uh, how, how you approached that? So... I was 30 when I became a chief executive, um, which is 10 years ago now. And um, I had a one-year-old son. I actually uh, fled a relationship uh, from domestic violence. And I was uh, living in temporary accommodation, in emergency accommodation, uh, when I decided to be a chief executive. I remember thinking about what job opportunities there were for me working in national development and realising that I couldn't do what I set out to do anymore because national development isn't very uh, family friendly. You know, I was often out of home from three or four in the morning until 11 at night travelling across the country. And I looked at what my options were and I realised that I didn't, I, I didn't come from a conventional background you know I had no degree I left school at 16 (laughs) I'd worked my way up from being a volunteer to a project manager in the charity sector and for me I felt like the next step was that I wanted to go into senior management and I did I do remember a conversation with somebody uh, that I'd worked with at Volunteering England who took a look at my CV and said to me I was talking to him about what's missing, you know, how can I develop my career? And he said to me, you just need to go and be a chief executive. And I thought, well, (laughs) just be a chief executive. It's not that easy. (laughs) So it's not that easy. And, you know, actually, you know, it was that easy. It took taking the decision that I wanted to be a chief executive. And uh, parallel to that, uh, somebody had taught me that um, the reason why women don't apply for leadership roles is that they look for a specific job match between the the person's specification and their past experiences. 
And I learned that men just look at maybe if they can achieve 30 or 40% of the job description. And I thought, hang on a second. (laughs) Okay, this is interesting. You know, I need to move up into chief executive ship. I'm going to do this. So I was working for a charity as a consultant, um, doing some work in the last economic recession, supporting charities, helping them to recover from the government cuts that had been issued. And the chief executive left at the news of the funding diminishing for the organisation. And I convinced the board to give me a role as chief executive, um, really taking over what was closing a charity very slowly, but going out, you know, with as much magic as possible. And we worked in that year that I was chief executive at the organisation to really make sure that the organisations that we worked with, which was about 100 children and youth charities in Oxfordshire, that they survived through the last economic recession. So that was our core goal. And we we knew that if we could keep them all going and hand over our functions to another charity, that we'd done our jobs. And that's exactly what I did. So that was my first chief executive role. And then I jumped into managing a very large provision from there, which was another leap. And I was inexperienced at the time and very brave (laughs) and perhaps a little stupid too. (laughs) And um, for me, it was just a phenomenal experience. When I arrived in that specific charity, the finances were beyond a poor shape. They were, you know, near bankruptcy and I had to turn them around exceptionally quickly. And I think through sort of sheer grit and determination, I did. <laughs> but it it definitely wasn't easy because, you know, in the backdrop of this, my housing was insecure. I had a domestically violent ex-partner who was making the handovers hell. And I was fighting with the benefit agency, trying to put in place benefits to support us to move into housing. And so it was a very challenging time. And I certainly felt like... A, It was particularly challenging. I went on, so the transition I made to that next charity was actually a homeless charity. So to be in a homeless situation at the same time as managing a homeless charity, (laughs) it was very intense. Definitely lived experience, isn't it? Yeah, and you know, we talk about people with lived experience. I mean, I certainly feel like I've had a lot of lived experience of the challenges that the people that we try to serve in the charity sector are facing. You know, I come from quite a deprived family, you know, and my dad was a drug addict growing up and, you know, my mom has a long-term mental health issue. So so growing up was very challenging and equally, you know, leaving school at 16 was very challenging. So I think for me, there was, there's so much I've learned through coming into the charity sector as a volunteer and then moving my way up. But I certainly was not a perfectly formed CEO at the beginning. You know, I had the communication skills of somebody who had a very challenging background. You know, So I wasn't a perfectly finished creature. And I certainly wasn't a traditional mould for chief executives. And I think that's what's so great about you sharing this experience with us. And thank you for doing that, because I think for many people, they look at what they think a chief exec is supposed to be. And it's a certain mould and background and a certain route through university with a certain kind of uh, background experience. I think that's what it is to be a chief exec. And I think what you demonstrate is that uh, we need far more diversity of experience because we get real depth and breadth of uh, knowledge and experience to make, uh, to lead ourselves better. And I'm fascinated about how you brought some of that experience into your approach. So you talked about some of the things that you were able to draw on that informed uh, your ability to be a chief exec. What, what did that look like? What did you bring with you that helped? So, I mean, I trained from a volunteer as a youth worker. So it was all about active participation and collaboration and um, thinking about, uh, I mean, a youth work is an empowerment model in itself. And so I very much brought that to the organisations that I managed. And I think they're so much more powerful when you empower the people that you work with as opposed to do things for them or just make decisions on their behalf. 
And I've worked really hard to bring that to the organisations that we've worked with and those sort of co-production models where we make decisions together. And it's certainly a challenge because I think there is an assumption of a lack of skill in the communities in which we work that a lot of people think that they're not capable of making decisions about what services should look like. But in them creating services, they've become more dynamic and engaging and certainly more transformative for those individuals. So, you know, in all the organisations I've worked in, there's been a huge surge in participation as a result of the changes that we've made. But equally, you know, sort of they've been very much Uh, they've grown exponentially in terms of what they could deliver and also the quality of impact of those services. So it is, you know, sort of there was something that somebody once said to me about people live up to your expectations of them. (laughs) And, you know, sort of the expectations the sector has of some of its beneficiaries and service users is pretty low so when we cast very low expectations on people, we don't give them the opportunity to change their lives. We actually limit the, their capabilities to change. And so for me, part of what is really important is that we encourage chief executives and their organisations to have much higher expectations of the people that they work with for change, because that translates into better outcomes for the people participating in those services. The other thing is moving services away from, if you like, being problem-led. So they only work with people with certain diagnostic problems, you know. And the funding kind of derives and steers us to think about things in that way. But in fact, you know, people, when you categorise people by their problems, it becomes such a strong part of their identity that it makes it very hard for them to move on. And I'll give you an example of one beneficiary we worked with in in the homeless charity that I worked in, a youth homeless charity. There was a young woman who had anorexia and she could only stay in the high needs anorexia service if her weight stayed below a certain area where she could access a lot of counselling and therapeutic support. When her weight went above a certain weight, she was put out into adult mental health and unable to access the anorexia support. So she was constantly trying to bring her weight down again to such an unhealthy level in order to maintain that level of support. So it was a perverse incentive. And we have to think about that. I think that's really interesting to hear about how the, uh, the, the, the direct experience of people you work with gives you a, a different insight into how to approach the, the, the work that you do and having that present within the leadership as well as uh, listening to the, the beneficiaries or the clients that you work with feels like it gives you a really richer understanding of the work that the organisation is trying to do. Um, but I, I was interested in uh, what you were sharing about those first two jobs really and then into leading the homeless charity as well where you had all of those challenges in your personal life as well as the professional challenges that each of those organisations were facing. What did you draw on? Because you talked about how there wasn't a lot of support available to you. Where were you able to reach out or what were you able to draw on to help build your resilience and ability to cope with those challenges? Well, I was extremely lucky because I had uh, a network of people that I built around me that were existing chief executives. So I met with another chief executive every six weeks and we discussed and shared our strategies and supported one another. And I also had mentoring from an excellent chief executive who was literally only a few steps ahead of me at the time, but he's now he's now working for the National Lottery Fund as a deputy director, so very senior now. And um, But in terms of thinking about the other support, it was quite lonely, I think. You know, a lot of the time it was extraordinarily challenging particularly as a single parent and being in such poverty, you know, that often I found it kind of ironic that I was going to millionaires' houses in the day and securing these mammoth donations and then going into the organisation that was managing a food bank and giving out food 
donations, then going home and not picking up my son too early because I couldn't afford to feed him at home. <laughs> you know, it was like this crazy situation at the time where I was literally working and banking on my future that I knew that it was going to be a real challenge to take these roles on because they the cost of childcare was so phenomenal. It made it really difficult to work, but I knew if I could have chief executive on my CV that that would, you know, eventually pay for itself and I would eventually be okay. But it was a, a, a banking on my future, really, and it meant living in poverty for the first few years of being a chief executive. And it was tremendously challenging, but I really got a lot out of helping people and I got a lot out of helping these organisations to survive. And um, what what have you learned for yourself in terms of your own kind of uh, resilience and well-being that you've carried forward into how you approach leadership now? I think I learned the hard way about burning out. <laughs> I think many charity chief executives do. So, yes, it can be tremendously difficult. I'm, I was always used to working extremely hard and, you know, I'm putting in my 100%. And when I became a parent, that became a lot harder. What I did learn and, you know, have effectively taken into the work I do with chief executive scenes is that actually it is so much more productive to just do your working hours and do nothing extra, <laughs> you know, and that, you know, there is nothing so important that involves giving up your sleep um, or looking after your own well-being. We often treat these funding opportunities as if they'll never come around again unless we apply for them overnight and right sit deep into the night, you know. But actually, charities very rarely get that funding that they've spent all night writing with bleary eyes, you know. <laughs> so to be <laughs> honest, it's better for them to, to spend the time and the energy to make a more proactive long-term approach to their fundraising. And in that view, you know, that was uh, tantamount to my success in fundraising and the reason why I've raised 17 and a half million pounds you know and then because it was about taking a very proactive approach and not reactive working through the night and trying to do bids off the hoof which I found very quickly tangled you up anyway you know as a um, because you couldn't remember what you'd written or you didn't save it properly and things like that or you rushed through it so I think from my perspective Helping chief executives to manage their their time and, you know, in that way and stop seeing everything because they have to give 100 hours a week and that's the only way the job's going to get done. Because really, that's just a, a pathway to burnout. And it's fascinating, isn't it, that that does seem to be just the, uh, the the working assumption that 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 just goes with the job. If you're a chief exec, then you need to work every every hour under the sun and and half the night as well. Even though all of the research and evidence suggests that actually after about forty hours or so a week, we stop being productive. And actually, the every hour you spend beyond that is actually a, a, an inefficient hour. And the, and the quality of the work that you do will be far less than if you uh, looked after yourself and took the time to, to re-energise yourself. Exactly. And I think the other side of it as well is that when uh, chief executives, you know, sort of give all that time to the organisation, it is time limited. They can't do it for long periods. And burnout is very, very real. And everybody thinks they're invincible until they're not. And if you don't make time for your health and well-being, you will be making time for your ill health. And that is very much, uh, very, very real. And I think that, you know, alongside that, chief executives often inherit the organisational culture of overworking. Uh, there are some organisations in the sector that are well, well known for their overwork cultures. And, and really, they what chief executives forget is they've got the opportunity to set the cultural standard and to reset the culture in their organisations. So we really encourage chief executives to move beyond that and to work out how they can manage boundaries with their trustees and other stakeholders to not have the expectation that they're on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and it, 
you know, the, this is an old and outdated mode of working. It really works for nobody, including the organisation. And, you know, so from my perspective, this is something that gives chief executives their lives back again, but also helps their organisations to become so much more effective because it's often when people are exhausted and really burnt out that the relationships in the organisation begin to deteriorate as well as the work as well. So, you know, so a big piece of my work supporting chief executives is often at the point of a fallout between the board and the chief executive or the or the chief executive and their staff. And, you know, from that point of view, very often because the chief executive has been in this overworking phase for so long, they have got wrapped up in, in a drama that actually is quite easily resolvable if they come back, you know, and distance themselves from the problem enough to look at it. But they tend to get involved in these dramas when their judgment is skewed and it's, you know, through poor sleep and poor um, poor work hygiene and, you know, um, sending off angry emails at 11 o'clock at night, which, you know, nobody wants to wake up to uh, when they wake up the next morning. So how do you advise chief execs around that board relationship? You've touched on that a few times around where it can both be dysfunctional and also crucial for both the organisation as well as the chief exec. Um, When you're working with a chief executive, how do you advise them about how to create a, a productive and healthy relationship with their board? I think that I liken it to the board of trustees setting out a destination for where they'd like the chief executive to get to and then the the chief executive determines the route might come back and check with the (laughs) navigator that they've got the best route you know so it is a it is a partnership and one of critical friendship and I know people bounce around critical friendship all the time I think it's more useful to unpack what that actually means for me critical friendship actually means that the chief executives are taking to the trustees their their problems to help solve them and that equally that there's space and time within the trustees meetings for deep dive discussions actually to explore the work um trustees meetings are very often a sort of rubber stamp exercise of oh are we proving this say yes to this say no to this and that's not actually a productive use of all of the skill and capability in a board of trustees. So from my perspective, a very useful way of seeing the board is that you have perhaps a a board meeting that is dedicated to business and finance. And then the next one could be a deep dive about a specific issue. So reserving six board meetings a year or every other board meeting, if you have less board meetings, for a deep dive exercise where you explore core problems that the charity is facing or core opportunities for development. Alongside that, I think that it's really important that chief executives and boards have a good, strong communication. And both sides can fall down on this. It's not just the board. We often complain about boards and say, oh, aren't they useless? But in fact, sometimes chief executives have quite dysfunctional ways of working with boards as well. So from the chief executive's side, they've got to learn to acknowledge that ultimately the board has the final say. So they have to learn to constructively disagree sometimes, but agree to carry out the work that has been set by the board. The chief executive also needs to have a robust way of communicating with the board, which recognises the professional differences that might exist in the way that they communicate. I often liken it to, it's like having eight managers. Obviously, eight managers are never going to necessarily all agree on something. But if you can find ways to constructively disagree and agree all of that process with the board, It allows people to move the conversation on, even though there's a constructive disagreement about something, then, you know, you're either agreeing to park it or you're agreeing to vote on it or you're agreeing to move it to another board and do more research before coming back again. 
And that dynamic is often um, really set with the relationship with the chair, isn't it? So that kind of touch point between how the chair and the chief exec work together as the kind of portal into the wider board and, of course, then the, the staff team in the organisation. Do, do you focus particularly in on that dynamic or do you uh, do you look at the whole board relationship as well? Yeah, I mean, we coach in chairs as well. And one of the things with chairs, and we also support chief executives to upwards coach their chair, if you like. (laughs) I think it's really important that the business of the board continues in a professional format. One of the things that has become common and is a constant source of antagonism in the sector is the Alan Sugar style boardroom. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, sort of whilst it might look good on TV, the actual exposure of that, of your chief executive is what caused a lot of chief executives to leave their roles. So we encourage chairs to step up and learn how to control their boards and also um, encourage them to create safe spaces where things can be discussed. Um, It's really important that actually if somebody's getting heated, what needs to happen is the meeting needs to be paused and, you know, and to take five and go and calm down and then kind of resume business when people are ready to talk in a calm and sensible way. We wouldn't let bullying happen in our organisations at a lower level. You know, if somebody was angry, we'd say, OK, let's take five, you know, go and get some fresh air and a cup of tea and come back. You know, and that approach needs to exist in boards as well, that actually, you know, there has to be a level of respect and decency that we all afford each other within an organisation And, you know, sort of, I think boards have become in the past very heated places. And this is where, you know, sort of the accusations of discrimination come in uh, from chief executives and equally amongst boards that actually when they become heated places, people feel uh, like they're being bullied. And this is a huge cultural issue. And there's a sort of expectation in the sector sometimes from trustees, you know, having worked with many, many trustees and done their training as well. There's an expectation with trustees that CEOs should be able to cope with there. So, you know, much like the Alan Sugar kind of methodology, you know, that it's like they should be tough, you know. Um, And so we're not giving them the same, the rights as any other employee, when in fact, legally, there is exactly the same relationship with the chief executive as the chief executive has with their employees. And have you seen much more of that in 2020, given everything that we've experienced this year around COVID and, uh, and, and, and you know, a huge crisis for the charity sector at whatever level of organisation you are? How have you seen chief execs and boards respond to that? In a mixture of ways. Some boards have really stepped up to supporting their chief executive and really, really assisted them to uh, just to mentally cope. You know, they've rung up their chief executive every week, had a one-to-one and checked in on them. Um, other boards seem to have literally cut their chief executive out of the picture, furloughed them, and then re- are refusing to communicate with them about whether the charity is going to reopen or not and under what format it would reopen. Equally, there's a lot of charity chief executives that feel that they haven't that their boards just don't care because they just haven't communicated any more regularly during COVID than at any other time. So there's a sense of disconnect between the urgency and crisis of the situation versus the trustees' responses. I think, you know, the proper answer is for trustees to, you know, be checking in with their chief executive exactly what extra help they want. I certainly urge all trustees to be stepping up and helping chief executives work out both how they're going to reform their services to be more focused on digital, but also how to keep fundraising for the organisation during this economic crisis. Uh, One thing that's really, really mission critical is that during this crisis, we know that there's going to be a lot less money around and we know that it will only go to the best organisations and boards of trustees need to step up their game and, and do more for their charities because actually it's the charities whose boards are actively engaged and really working very hard with the charities management to keep the organisation afloat that are going to be much more successful in fundraising than those trustees that don't show up and put their skin in the game. Um, So it does 
at times like these take organizations they need to be extraordinary not just the ordinary not just business as usual they need to be extraordinary to get fundraising and to get the funds in and we really need to think as a sector and trustees need to step up to really think about how they can push their organization into extraordinary right now It'd be great to return in a moment to to what that could look like in the future. But before we do, I'm just minded to return to the point you made about some of the core competencies that chief execs need, which I think it'd be really interesting to unpack a bit because that feels like a, a foundation for for leadership, what whatever might be needed in the current context. And you said that sometimes um, uh, when we think about chief execs, we can get caught up with the concept of leadership and lose sight of some of the the basics that are needed to just run an organisation. What 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 have you? about that? I mean, running an organisation is effectively like running a business. You know, we we can't run a charity in isolation of of it being its own uh, commercial entity. So in terms of thinking about the core competencies that chief executives need to be able to do, it's very much about Chief executives need to be financially competent and to be able to to drive profit through the organisation, particularly at a time like this where they need to be carrying high reserves to manage uncertainty. They need to be operationally managing the marketing and fundraising and organisational development and service development. Um, Now, often chief executives come at it from a perspective where they've perhaps been a senior director of one of those departments before they step up into chief executiveship. So when they are stepping up, there's always a gap in knowledge. You know, um, a head of fundraising won't have good operational management, a good operational manager won't have good fundraising and advocacy skills. You know, so there is a lot, particularly in charities, that chief executives need to do if their turnovers are less than a couple of million pounds a year. It's very much about chief executives learning how to manage every aspect of the business operationally and as well as lead as well. (laughs) Because, I mean, in practice, let's be honest, a lot of these job roles are not filled in charities that have a turn of of less than £2 million a year. You know, do they have a director of finance? Do they have a director of marketing? Do they have a director of operations? The chances are that actually this chief executive is all of those people, you know, particularly in the lower end of that £2 you know, under 500,000, you know, everybody is doing all of those job roles. So to do them effectively, we really need to help chief executives to identify the skills they need versus what their team needs and what they need to outsource as well. Um, But equally, we've seen millions and millions of pounds wasted on IT infrastructure development and CRM systems over the last few years that has gone virtually unused because charities haven't developed a great digital capacity or digital transformation too. So there's another challenge for chief executives that they're now trying to do the digital transformation piece. And although COVID has helped us to catch up, they say, 10 years in the last six months, we were probably 20 years behind in the first place. We're still another 10 years behind with our digital competency And there's huge scope for income generation development and huge scope for increasing the impact of the charities that we work with if we start to work in a digital context with today's standards rather than 10 years ago. And I think uh, amongst that opportunity, you're you're also pointing towards perhaps that that tension that can often be uh, the the hardest thing for leaders, which is balancing that kind of breadth and depth of responsibility, and to do so without, as as we describe, working your, your, your hundred hour weeks in order to be able to cover everything. And so that sense of needing to both be uh, having that helicopter view and seeing across the piece and being a strategic leader, and to have um, a sufficient line of sight on all of the different operational components which are all crucial to the success of the organization and deal with uh, the the sort of detailed challenges as well as the strategic and think about the opportunity you, know, you start to add <laughs> and add and add to the things that you think a chief exec needs to do um, and then also encourage a chief exec to work within a, you know, a, a reasonable working week and I think that's for, for leaders at all levels that's often the challenge because you can always fill your day with that long list of things that you feel you should be responsible for again how do you advise to navigate that so you get the right balance? 
I encourage charities to think about there are several different modes for governance, if you like. Um, one is your board governance, but uh, the second aspect is to think about how strategic advisory panels can play a role in, in doing some of those deep dive exercises that are related to specific specialisms. So what I would encourage charities to do is actually to recruit strategic advisors to give senior management capacity across all of the areas that the chief executive is not competent in so that the chief executive is not making all of the decisions and trying to do the research across fields they know nothing about. Um, so those strategic advisory panels can cover, you know, everything from human resources to digital to, uh, you know, sort of any areas of fundraising the CEO is not competent in, uh, thinking about how to commission or develop their social media strategy, uh, thinking about the organisation's uh, financial management and controls. And specialists in each of those areas, they're not they don't necessarily make good trustees because within the trustee format, if they attend trustees meetings, they're going to spend 90% of the time they're giving to the organisation, not giving in their specialist capability. So, Really, some of what we have conventionally thought makes good governance, which is to have a legal trustee and an accounting trustee and, a, you know, all these different trustees covering these different elements. Actually, sometimes they could be much more productive if they were a strategic advisor and were not part of the board. It doesn't mean they can't attend the board to give their strategic advice to the board. But if they asking, for example, a clinical expert to come and contribute on finance, you know, they're not going to necessarily be able to give an informed view, you know, and they're not necessarily interested in charitable governance either. You want your board to be a place where people genuinely care about the actual governance of charities and your strategic advisory panels to guide your specialist work in each area. So, for example, if you're a cancer charity, you might have strategic advisors on who are doctors in the field of cancer, you know, but sitting those doctors in the board meeting, you'd be wasting hours and hours and hours of their time not contrib contributing any clinical expertise whatsoever. So they're spending thousands of pounds of their time not contributing that. So for me, it's, a, it's thinking much more uh, widely about how we capacity build our senior management team through volunteer engagement and thinking very carefully about how we engage volunteers, but equally thinking about how we can pass some of those lower level tasks that chief executives sometimes in smaller charities tend to be preoccupied by into you know sort of the volunteer workforce as well and thinking about how they engage volunteers you know there's a often a discussion and debate on social media about all the funny jobs that chief executives do about you know they clean the toilets they make the tea they you know but why are they doing those things that's not a good use of time you know and it's not a good use of their wage either so I encourage chief executives to really focus on what is the return on investment for their time and how can they maximise that and then capacity build the volunteer team around them or their staff team to take on those other tasks and responsibilities. That's really helpful. I've, I've heard it said before that the, the trick is to both manage talent and manage upwards. And if, if you can get the balance of both of those things, you, you get the best out of the people around you. And then you're you're not taking sole responsibility for everything, but you're building the sort of trust and confidence to, to build a team. And that, that ultimately gives you the space to do what you can do best. Um, easier said than done often, but it feels like that's 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 what you're aiming for. And I, I was uh, I wanted to hear a bit more about what you describe what you learned from the program you went on. So you talked about going on that transformational program and how that led you to really transform your approach to leadership. What, what did you find out and how did you apply that? What I learned through transformational leadership was that what typically happens within organisations is that we plan incrementally from today. So we think about what are we going to do tomorrow, you know, and what, uh, particularly in a time like now, we're thinking about what is the best case scenario and what is the worst case scenario of things that can happen. But in fact, a transformational leadership outcome is where we look into the future and we ask ourselves what's the best possible thing that could happen for our organisation and then if we achieved that what would that then allow us to do and we keep doing that until we've got to such a big and exciting and a, you know almost seems completely unobtainable vision 
And that vision is what we then build back from. So we use transformational leadership to to build back from the future to, to today. And by doing so, actually, we get a result so much bigger and better. Because if you can imagine, if you plan for no growth or just to sustain yourself, then that's what you will get. But if you plan for exponential growth, if you don't get exponential growth, you still get large growth. <laughs> so it's yeah. about planning, you know, in a much larger way to, and what uh, many funders tell me, you know, from conversations I've had with meetings with them, and I won't name the funders because I think it would frustrate the listeners, but the the funders tell me that basically what they receive is not necessarily fundable projects that they have a lot more money to give than we have we get allocated and although they might be sending a letter to you saying that they're oversubscribed they're really undersubscribed with good ideas that can work and that's the message that has come back from funders time time again is that they see that charities have um, some ambition, but they can't see the change that is being made, you know, the actual shift and, you know, what actual change is really, really, truly happening. And equally, that a lot of charities are not planning their projects properly and are sort of submitting in that rushed way where they haven't really thought about the exact project they want to deliver and haven't engaged beneficiaries in that service design. So I think we've all got a challenge as a sector to think a lot bigger, but also to be brave enough to plan. If you ask a lot of charities, how would you spend a million pounds if I gave it to you tomorrow? Very few would actually be able to give you a budget and a project plan. Um, In fact, a funder once came to me with four million pounds to give to some youth charities in Oxfordshire. And they said, can you tell us any youth charities that are doing good work that could use this amount of money? And I went off, I got on the phone to, you know, all of the youth charities that I worked with. And none of them could come back with a plan within a day, a week, a month. You know, six weeks later, the funder had lost interest and took their four million pounds somewhere else. So, you know, the... The message is that if you don't have, as a charity, a really big, ambitious plan that is costed, budgeted and realistic, that you will never get the big money that you're looking for. So transformational leadership is really about creating the environment for that large growth, you know, creating that plan, thinking about how you resource it. But it's also about encouraging leaders to stop trying to do everything themselves and to work on how they enroll the wider community in their mission, that actually all successful, hugely successful initiatives are not dependent upon one person. It's almost an aspect of losing control of trying to achieve the vision all by yourself, you know, and losing control of that sort of, Mm. of what the end goal might look like in its entirety, that actually when you empower others and enroll others in helping you to achieve your really, really large vision that actually it can take on a life of its own. Um, You know, some chief executives should be using every opportunity that they have to be talking about their growth vision to everybody they meet and finding out how people can help. That becomes really empowering. And what would you say to those chief execs who would be saying, but Anna, it's uh, yeah, we're just trying to survive at the moment and you know, we, we don't know if we'll be here tomorrow. We haven't got time to be dreaming. What, what, what would you say to them? I guess the way I, I would encourage them to look at it is to compare themselves side by side through the eyes of a funder. You know, if you're a funder and you're looking at four charities who need funding, you only have the money to fund one, are you going to fund the one that says, I'm not sure if we're going to be here tomorrow? The second one who says, oh, we're, we're doomed. <laughs> or are we going to go to the one, oh, well, we're just going to carry on the same thing as what we've always done? Or are you going to back the charity CEO who says, we've got really ambitious plans for the future and we're definitely going to be here? 
you know, without a shadow of a doubt, even if I had to do the job unpaid, I would be here tomorrow and I would deliver and I would make sure our beneficiaries continue to need these services, you know. And we have to think about how that looks to funders. Funders are genuinely making life and death decisions for charities at the moment, you know, and they are going to back the leaders who are ambitious and optimistic about the future, Um, And that is a fact, you know, and I think a lot of funders worry at a time like this that they're pouring money into a bottomless pit and to an organisation just to pay redundancy fees. I can tell you now, I've never heard a funder say, I really want to fund your redundancy payments. Never heard that said. And looking ahead, Anna, to the to the future, um, what what would you like to see happen around uh, leadership development? You talked about how, as a sector, we need to invest more in in coaching and personal development for chief execs. Um, what 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 would you like to see happen over the next twelve eighteen months? I would like to see uh, there being genuine opportunities for for proper chief executive training programs that focus on enabling people to come into new chief executive roles but also those that are even in chief executive roles for some time that there's some some stretch and some continuing professional development for them they need stretch learning you know they need training that really stretches their fundraising capability we need to recognize that chief executives needs are not necessarily met through an organisation like the Institute of Fundraising, where somebody needs to be full-time fundraising to really successfully complete their courses, but actually think that chief executives have a specific role in fundraising that needs to be trained for. So, you know, if we could make all of our chief executives tomorrow very proficient at fundraising, we would be phenomenally more financially successful as a sector. Um, And we would be able to encourage and motivate a lot more philanthropy Alongside this, chief executives really need a professional development framework and professional development training. Um, I can't provide, you know, all of this by myself as as an organisation. It's, you know, not our priority nor our focus. And I really encourage other organisations to step up and be a part of this. I certainly think that charity chief executives also need to have royal charter status. The, you know, managing directors in companies have it. Why don't we have it in the charity sector? It is a very special breed of skills that we need to be chief executives. And we should recognise those that have extraordinary skills. Equally, we need to encourage every chief executive to be extraordinary because otherwise we're failing the communities whose charities are serving those communities. So from my perspective, I'd really love to see that, you know, everybody is taking more of an interest in training our chief executives. There's a financial incentive, moral imperative and huge community benefit from doing so. And uh, what personal goals do you hold for yourself over the next year or so? How are you hoping to, to learn and grow? Uh, So I have been learning and developing and really concentrating on how I can develop coaching programs for our chief executives um, and really how I can grow. Um, I am hoping to study a master's in neuroscience next September. (laughs) So um, I've got a massive passion in the brain and brain development. So I think from my perspective, you know, I'm going to be thinking about how I can grow and develop as a leader. And I also just want to see as many charities that I work with survive as possible. So a lot of my effort is outwardly focused on those charities at the moment. Um, I think it is a tremendously, tremendously difficult time and it's going to get worse before it gets better. And the chief executives that I work with I think, are doing incredible work across the sector. Incredible, incredible work. Um, And I'd really like to see them all still in the sector in 12 months' time. And I think that in itself is a huge challenge that I intend to raise to um, every, every step of the way. And so we've we've talked about some of the challenges and uh, and things that we're going to need to overcome in the in the years ahead of us, but also lots of opportunity too. So let me ask you, Anna, what what gives you the most hope for the future? I think what gives me the most hope for the future is that people are still motivated to play their role in helping 
and that humanity as a whole, even though we often look at the dark side of humanity and, you know, and think about all the negativity in the news and things like that, that there is an enormous goodwill across the country and globally to get through this together. And I'd really encourage charities and organisations to really reach out continuously to their communities and ask them how they can help them because people really do want to give their time to help organisations through this. And we really need to think about how we facilitate that. You know, and I think that gives me an enormous sense of hope that actually people really are prepared to go above and beyond to help us and we just need to give them that opportunity. There we go, our latest episode of Opmo with Anna Day. Our conversation really sparked lots of reflections for me, particularly about how to balance the wide range of demands and responsibilities experienced by senior leaders with the need to create boundaries for your own health and well-being. And I really admired Anna's tenacity, courage, and passion too. You can find Anna Day on the Twitter at Anna Day Tweets and the CEO Hacks Group are active on the Facebook too. And we'll provide some links to Anna's website in the show notes. So thanks again to Anna. And as always, my heartfelt appreciation for the greatly talented Katie Clark and Mark Hatter for producing this podcast. And thanks to you, dear listener. If you want to keep regularly updated, you can subscribe at our website, onthemindof.com, and sign up for regular downloads through iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you usually get your podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, follow the On The Mind Of pod on Twitter, or me at Mr. Joe Jenkins. And if you're able to share the podcast and rate it too, that will help us reach a few more people and give us encouragement to make a few more shows. Until next time, thanks for listening to Otmo the podcast that explores what's on the mind of leaders who are seeking to change the world.